It's been about five weeks since we were in the Red Letter Study, and it's just been a few things that happening. We had, uh, we took three weeks off um, for Israel to talk about Israel and all sorts of issues associated with us forming a personal response to current events and world events and traumatic events and so on and so forth. And uh, then we took another couple of weeks to do some other things. But um, I want to get back to the Red Letter Study. And if you will recall, you know, previously at the effect... Um, we had uh, we just had finished chapter five, and so we are starting with chapter six right now today, and uh, brand new chapter, brand new kind of train of thought here uh, that Jesus is entering into. But um, kind of as a lead into that, there are basically two ways for us to live our lives. Two ways: we can live in fear, or we can live in love. Now, it's not really that much of a binary choice. I mean, really what we're talking about here, and I always like to bring this up a lot, is that we're really searching for 51% at least. We're looking for our life to be characterized by something that more often than not, we are in this particular camp, attitude, way of seeing. And so we're trying to characterize our lives by fear. Let me flip that over. We're trying to characterize our lives by love and not fear. How do we know where we are in that, in that uh, tussle between love and fear? Uh, well, check your blood pressure. Check your stress level. You know, check your anxiety. Because that's going to give you the closest uh, you know, look at where you're at. Because when we can move over from fear into love, what we're actually doing is moving into trust. And trust and anxiety are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. And so if we're starting to live our lives less stressed, less anxious, less worried, um, then we know that we're moving, we're, we're crossing that threshold. That's how we can tell. It doesn't mean that even the best of us isn't going to have stressed days and stressed times. It doesn't, matter that we're that, it doesn't mean that we're not fighting that. But it does mean that we're finally crossing a threshold where we can say more often than not, I am on this side. I am starting to allow trust to take over and change the way that I do business, just change the way that I see and experience my moments. Because if we're living life from a place of fear, what is the view from there? If we're living our life in fear, that means we're living our life viewing the needs that we have, the lack of things that we see. And the things that we want, we're always looking from that point of view. Because the fear is that we're not going to get what we need or we're going to lose what we have. But the focus is on lack of. The focus is on need. Now, Jesus said he came to bring us life and life abundantly. That's going to be the flip side of that. If we can start to look at life from a place of abundance and see that, hey, everything that we need is already here. Now, I know that I'm speaking here from an existential point of view. I'm speaking here from a spiritual point of view. Yes, we're always going to have physical needs that we have to meet. That's why we get up and go to work. That's why we do the things that we do. But if we can at the same time start to view life from the point of view that Jesus is coming, from saying that everything that is of lasting importance, everything that you really need, is abundant. It's like the air that you breathe. It's like the ground that you walk on. It's all here and it's all now. And when we can start to see that truth, then the gratitude can kick in. 
And gratitude is always now. And it's always here. Gratitude is never delayed. It's not out there someplace. It's either now or it's here or it's not in you. It doesn't exist at all. And when we get to the place of gratitude, now we're at the place of trust. That we know that in the future, everything somehow is going to be okay. These are the points, kind of the, the horns of the dilemma of human nature that we're in. And Jesus is all about getting us over to this side of abundance. He keeps coming back to abundance. If you look at his proverbs, his prayers, his parables, everything that he talks about are images of abundance. Whether he's invoking agriculture, invoking anything, it's always images of abundance because that's the way he sees life. That's the way he sees his Father. And Jesus is pointing us toward the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is why Jesus' message is based on the good news of the Father's everything. It's all about everything. Everything I have is already yours, right? What part of everything didn't you understand? It's all about the Father's everything. It's all about the Father's love. If he knows, if he can get us to that reality, everything begins to change. If he can't get us there, then we hobble along as best we can, still loved by that everything, but our lives won't reflect it the way that they could. So until we graduate from this viewpoint of need, until, until we can stop always seeing life as a zero-sum game, that's always having to scratch out everything that we need, usually out of somebody else's hide, then we're always going to live in that fear. Matthew 5 was all about Jesus redefining the law, but redefining it in a very specific way. He wanted to redefine it away from a legal point of view into a relational point of view. He said, you know, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill, which is actually a Hebrew idiom. It's not about destroying it completely or fulfilling it. It's about misinterpreting or interpreting correctly. That's what it meant to abolish or to destroy in this idiom. It meant to interpret it incorrectly. He's going to interpret it correctly, and he's going to fulfill it by interpreting it correctly and bring us into an understanding of what the law is really about. It's not about a legal set of duties that we have to fulfill or else. It is describing a relationship that we have, not only with God, but with each, each other. I mean, the law was primarily about how do people live together in such a way that they are mirroring what Jesus calls kingdom. He's bringing the law back to the intent of the law and not just about following rules. Because when we do that, more and more we are gathering this awareness of the abundance of God's presence, the abundance of everything that God brings to us. Now, turning the corner into Matthew 6, which is what we're doing today, Jesus is going to do the same thing that he did for the law, but now he's going to redefine righteousness in the same way that he broke down, deconstructed, and trying to turn the, the, the corner <coughs> on law. He wants to do that for righteousness. Why righteousness? And what does that really mean? You know, we say righteousness, and it brings up all sorts of, of strange images. But to the Jews of the first century, and especially to the rabbis, who were primarily from the Pharisaical school, they had three tests or three demonstrations of what they called righteousness. Tzedakah is the word that they use for righteousness. And they were almsgiving, charitable giving, we would say. It was prayer 
and it was also fasting. Those were the three ways that a person showed or tested their own righteousness, that tzedakah, their ability to do righteousness, was through giving gifts, through prayer, and through fasting. Trouble is that those same rabbis had reduced those three tests, which are beautiful in and of themselves and can be total funnels to a contemplative attitude and a way of connecting with God's abundance. But they had reduced them now to mere obligations. These were things that you had to do, and they attached numbers to all these things. Pharisees were nothing if not thorough, <laughs> and they were nothing if not lawyers. And so they attached all sorts of numbers to the way that you had to give and so on and so forth. But they reduced these three beautiful ways of showing kindness and loving kindness and justice and so on and so forth to obligations and to rules that you had to follow. And worse than that, they used them for themselves in order to, in order to aggrandize themselves to the people around them because they followed these three demonstrations and tests so excellently they could show everyone how spiritual they were, how righteous they were. And Jesus, of course, you know Jesus. He's going to tear all that stuff down because that's what he does. He's going to take these tables and overturn them. So what Jesus is doing in chapter 6 is redefining all three of these ways of showing righteousness. And we want to look today just at the first one, a charitable giving almsgiving. So let's take a look at Matthew 6, starting right at verse 1, and we're going to read up to verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 4. So take a look. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. All right, so that seems all pretty straightforward, right? But as always, if we dig into the Hebrew context, it's just going to open up some doors and some windows. So let's do that. I mean, first of all, this idea of practicing righteousness as it's, def as it's uh, translated for us in the NASB that you just read, really in the, in, the, uh, in the original language, it's doing righteousness is the way that they understand it. Doing righteousness is a Hebrew idiom. And we can't, uh, I can't, overestimate the importance of understanding idioms when we're reading this text or reading any text. Idioms are just a huge part of our language that we don't even, we kind of take for granted. We don't really think about idioms and what they mean so much. But if you have someone who's trying, if you have ever tried to learn a, a foreign language and then you end up trying to actually speak it in that, in that country, it's the idioms that just throw you for a loop. Because what is an idiom? Idiom is a phrase in a language that cannot be understood by just adding up the definitions of the words in the phrase. It's an agreed-upon meaning. It means whatever the people have agreed that it means, and it's not going to mean anything in a target language, especially one that you're digging up from 3,500 years ago. So I just wanted to put a finer point on this. Let's take a look at some English idioms that we say all the time, but we never really think about. How about as easy as pie? What, is, what does that mean, easy as pie? We don't know. 
Imagine someone digging up our text 2,000 years later and said, oh, it's easy as pie. It's a piece of cake. They're going to say, it has something to do with pastry? I don't know. How about beating around the bush, bent out of shape, hit the ceiling, break a leg? There's always a good one, right? How about killing time, kick the bucket, under the weather, by the skin of your teeth? That actually comes from the Bible, if you believe that, from Job. Throw in the towel. Now, isn't it fun to go back and look at the etymologies of a lot of these things and find out where they first came from? I, I love doing that uh, because there's a reason that we have these idioms. But what do they mean? It's raining cats and dogs. That would be a great one for someone to dig up in a thousand years, right? Wow, back in those days in the aughts, yeah, quadrupeds used to fall from the sky. I love that one. Shoot the breeze, chew the fat, bite the bullet, pull someone's leg. Wet behind the ears, catch someone's eye, sit on the fence. I got a million of these, but I'm going to stop there because you get the idea. But now let's flip over and let's look at some of the idioms that are in Hebrew from the Bible and the way that they translate directly and literally into English. Lift up your eyes. Now we can probably figure that one out, but obviously it means to look and see. But literally to lift up your eyes? Or how about lift up your head? What do you think that would mean? Well, it means, it means to restore honor. We would say, you know, keep your chin up. Same sort of idea. But lift up your head means to restore honor. If someone talks to you about your seed, they're not talking about your garden. They're talking about your children. That was the idiom for children. Flowing with milk and honey just meant that the land was fertile. If someone says your heart is melting, that means you're losing courage, that you're afraid. You're going to love this one. One who urinates on a wall. Just a man. It's an idiom for a man. And if someone tells you that you covered your feet, that means that you did urinate. This is from the Bible, you guys. That's from Samuel. I'm not making this stuff up. Marion's crawling under her seat. But I'm just telling you, this is in our book. But you come across that, if you were to read that, now obviously no one's going to translate it that way into English. They're going to translate it in a way that we can understand. But if you were translating this directly from the language and you come with cover your feet, but, you know, it's kind of graphically correct, I suppose. If someone says that you're speaking with four eyes, it means that two people are speaking face to face. Four eyes, get it? If someone talks about your hearts and your ki your hearts and your kidneys, it's about your thoughts and your emotions. If someone says you have no quiet in your belly, they're telling you that you're greedy. And if you're great before God, God, it just means you're big, you're large. The city of Nineveh was great before God. It doesn't mean that it was holy or the people that were, were turned toward God. It just means it's a big city. You know, L.A. is great before God. Really? Okay. Gird up your loins simply means to get ready. Hear in the ears means to whisper. Eat your own bread. I like this one. Eat your own bread. What does that mean? It means get a job. <laughs> it means be self-sustaining. How long will you take away my life? It means you're really annoying me. You're bothering me. And speak mouth to mouth is the way that they would say speak face to face. So these are some that are actually taken from the Old and New Testaments, but they can really throw us. Now, none of these are really going to affect our theology or our understanding of doctrine, right? But when Jesus says poor in spirit, and we've gone over this one many times, you know, most of us take that as a negative. 
They're poor in spirit. It means that they don't really have spiritual awareness. They're really not practicing spiritual gifts, blah, blah, blah. That's an idiom, which means that you have an attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. It's something that Jesus says, you're blessed when you're poor in spirit. But that throws us unless we know the idiomatic expression. When he talked about abolishing and fulfilling the law, I just covered that. It doesn't just mean to destroy it. It means to misinterpret it. You're abolishing it through misinterpretation, and you fulfill it by interpreting it correctly. And now we've got this idea of doing righteousness, doing tzedakah. And it means to give charitably. It means to do acts of mercy. And so when he talks about practicing righteousness, it has nothing to do with being a great person. It has to do whether you are actually fulfilling the needs of others by giving and by acting with mercy toward people. So that's the first idiom. We're going to look at six phrases in just this little passage that we read that are going to influence the meaning that we're going to take from it. So doing righteousness means charitable giving and acts of mercy. Sounding the trumpet. He says, don't sound the trumpet like the hypocrites do. Okay, now that sounds like maybe it's a metaphor, but really it's another idiomatic phrase. What did it have to do with? There were 13 collection boxes in the court of the women outside the ancient temple. And this was a public space. And if the women could go this far and no further. Sorry, ladies. But uh, that was a very public space. And there was these 13 big collection boxes around the perimeter of the court. And they were all conical and shaped. So they had a small throat at the top, and then they widened at the bottom. And so if someone really wanted you to know how much money they were giving, they'd take a handful of coins and bang them down into it and would reverberate and everybody would look and say, ooh, they gave a lot of money. That's sounding the trumpet. It's a way of self-aggrandizing. Again, it's a way of calling attention to your gift because you're trying to use this in a way of feathering your own nest to get higher up the social ladder or whatever it is you're trying to do. But you want to make everyone completely aware of what you gave. And the hypocrites, this idea of a hypocrite. We use that word entirely too much. There really aren't that many hypocrites among us. There's a heck of a lot of sinners in the sense of people doing what is not the best thing to do for a relationship and hurting others. Most of us are doing the best we can with what we've got to work with at any given moment. But a hypocrite is someone who knows, consciously knows, that they're projecting an image in order to get some sort of gain. The word goes back to the Greek the, the actors that would wear masks when they played, you know, comedy and tragedy, they would wear masks. That was the hypocrite. But it was just an actor playing a part. A true hypocrite is someone who's consciously playing a part, assuming a role, but for some sort of gain. That's why Jesus calls these people who are sounding the trumpet hypocrites, because they're playing a role for their own gain and negating what they're actually doing for somebody else. Now, yeah, the gift is still going to go to someone who needs it, and that's great. But in terms of their own spiritual development, he says, you've got your reward in full. It goes no further than that. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. That's a great one. And we can probably figure out what that means. It means to be as secret as possible. But the Hebrews have this this anthropomorphic way of uh, attributing actions to body parts as a metaphor for the whole person, right? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you, cut it off. That's a typical Hebrew way of expressing, using the body part as a stand-in for the whole person. And so that's kind of what's happening here. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. 
In other words, if your best and dearest friend was sitting right here to your right, don't let him see what your left hand is doing. Keep that in complete secret. We're trying to do things in a way that we are not calling attention to ourselves. And then this idea of in secret itself is a possible allusion to the chamber of secrets in the temple. This has nothing to do with Harry Potter. I just want to make that clear right now. But there were two chambers in the sanctuary of the temple. One was a chamber of secrets and the other was a chamber, chamber of vessels. The chamber of vessels were where there were 93 golden vessels. They could be candle um, sticks, candle holders. They could be um, basins and cups and whatever they might be. But there was 93 of these golden vessels that were used in the daily ritual practice of the temple, and they were stored in this chamber. And then there was a, a wing of this chamber that was used for donation. So anybody could come and donate golden vessels. And every 30 days, the, the priests would go in and they would review what had been donated and they would um, see if they were suitable for the temple or not. And if not, they were sold and the money was then used to maintain the temple. But that was the chamber of vessels. The chamber of secrets was where anybody could come in and donate money for the use by the poor in order to keep the poor you know, moving forward and living their lives. But it was completely anonymous. It was completely secret. And that was completely separate from the poor actually coming and receiving the donations in order to keep their families alive. That was also completely anonymous and completely secret. It's really a beautiful system when you think about it. Because never the twain would meet. Donor and, and donee would never meet. And so the dignity of the donor was always respected. There wasn't this embarrassing um, you know, lack of, of uh, just ability to provide for yourself because you could go anonymously and take what you needed for your family or receive what you needed for your family. And it also presented, prevented the donor from feathering their nest and letting everybody know how much they gave and how well they did. So it was a beautiful system for people to be able to make sure that everyone had enough with everyone being able to move forward as healed as possible. And so this idea of in secret, Jesus is invoking that most likely. Everyone would know that illusion that was listening to him at the time. But of course, we don't get it. But this is what he's trying to get them to understand. Giving is not giving. If you're doing it for any other reason than just wanting to see someone else's life get better. Eliminate all those conflicts of interest and your giving can be pure. And the Father who sees you in secret, will then reward you in secret. So there's the sixth term, reward. How are we supposed to understand reward? Because for us, especially either, just as, as you know, modern Westerners or really anybody who's living life, but specifically as Christians as well, the reward that we seek is always separated from the action in time. So there is an action that we take, and we're going to expect a reward later on. And that reward is separated in time. So it's kind of like if we do something now, we get paid our wages later. Or we do something good now and we're paid a reward later. So it's all performance-based, right? But for Christians, the reward is separated into the afterlife. We do all the stuff that we need to do now and we're going to get a reward, the great reward in heaven. 
mean, this is the way that our doctrine works. This is the way that our whole mindset works, that the reward comes in the next life. But this is something we need to take a look at. In fact, there was one um, Christian scholar who said, at the Bema seat, now this is the judgment seat, and there's a passage where um, God sits on that judgment seat, which was just the raised platform from which the teachers taught in the synagogue, but they used it as a metaphor for God sitting at the Bema seat, this raised platform, and judging. But he says, at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat, we will feel regret if we didn't do more in our lives to get the reward that we're looking for. But I just want you to just think about that for a moment. You are in the presence of God. You are in the presence of living love, of perfect love, love that cannot be decreased and cannot be increased. It just self-exists. Do you really think that you're going to feel regret at that moment? Face to face? with four eyes <laughs> in the presence of God? Do you really think you're going to feel regret at that moment? What did Jesus say? He said, no matter what time you get to the field to work, whether it's early in the morning, whether it's midday, or with an hour to go, everybody gets paid the same. What do you think he's talking about? You see, we've got to put these things together. We have to understand what Jesus is trying to get across here so that these kinds of doctrinal ideas and theological ideas aren't going to throw us into a ditch, put us back into fear mode, put it back into lack and need and want mode, put us back into fear that is not part of the calculus that Jesus is trying to get across to us. So important for us to see this. We think that the reward is going to be a payment for work done, for wages, wages for work completed, or payment for good deeds, but it's all performance-based. Just like when Jesus tells us the story of, the, of, the, of Simon, the Pharisee, and the sinful woman who comes, Simon is all about that he has earned his place as a good Pharisee. He's a doctor of the law. He is someone who's followed the law himself, fastidiously, and here is this sinful woman who has done everything wrong and, you know, touching Jesus' feet and anointing them and crying over them. He is the one who feels entitled. She is the one who feels grateful. Jesus is trying to get us away from this performance-based idea that we somehow earn our seat at the table and we can feel entitled because of that and we can look down our nose, there's another idiom, at the people who don't. Put it all together. See where this is going. See how this completely changes the way that we view our relationship with God. Entitlement versus gratitude. There cannot be gratitude when you're feeling entitled to what you have earned. But when you realize that everything is a free gift, a gift you could never have given yourself, that's when gratitude can take root and everything can change. A reward in this sense from Jesus' lips cannot mean entitlement because Jesus said, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit, if you have an attitude of poverty, even if you're rich, that you are not domineering, you are not entitled, you are not in any way feeling superior to anybody else. That's poor in spirit. He said, you're blessed and you're children of God when that happens. You have kingdom at that point. So reward can't mean entitlement to Jesus. It can't mean 
a payment for good deeds? Or can it mean heaven to any Jew? Because Jews don't process that way. Jews aren't focused on the next life. They're focused on this life here and now. The entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is all within the context of kingdom. And we've gone over this on many times, that the kingdom of heaven is an idiom. And it means the quality of life that's available right here and right now when we are present, when we are connected. All right here, right now. Therefore, the reward is here now, too. The reward has to be here. It has to be now. Not separated in time, because Jews aren't focused on afterlife or there then. They're focused here now. Jesus is telling us that God never withholds anything. That's a fear-based concept, that God is going to withhold anything until we perform well, and then he releases a little bit here, a little bit there, and then more after we die. That's a fear-based, needs-based way of approaching life. Jesus is telling us that everything of God is always flowing. Flowing with milk and honey, if you will. It's always blowing like the wind. It's always flowing. The rewards that God gives us are always available. There's never a moment that they are not. Always here. Always now. Again, the air we breathe. The ground on which we walk. But... Those rewards are also only accessible in moments of connection. Always available, but only accessible in moments of connection. Why? Because the reward is the connection. It's a state of being. A state of being one with and conscious of the presence of kingdom right here, right now. When we allow ourselves to move beyond our own little cocoon, when we move into another's presence, into another's life, when we give into that other life, the connection that is established there is the reward. Not there then. Now, that connection is the reward. So how are we supposed to understand giving? What is Jesus trying to get at here? Well, think about it. What's the intent of the gift? What do you intend when you give a gift? And I remember early on, and 30 years ago, when I was just starting, you know, in a, a different form of Christianity, from Catholicism to to evangelical Christianity, one of the lines that was always thrown out was, "You cannot outgive God. You can't outgive God." Some of you probably heard that one too, and it's true. But what does that show us of our intent? If we're giving, thinking that we can't outgive God. Another one I heard was that anything that you tithe will come back to you a hundredfold. Anyone hear that one? Many of the email chain letters that you used to get, don't see those too much anymore, thankfully. But they were all based on that same premise. If you give, you know, you're gonna get your you're, you're gonna get it back a hundredfold. As soon as we start thinking of that, our giving has become an investment. It's no longer a gift. It's an investment. We're giving with the intent of getting back and getting back with interest, right? Again, fear-based, needs-based. As soon as we attach an amount to a gift, as soon as we attach a percentage to a gift, you know what we got? We got a tax. We don't have a gift anymore. Now it's a tax. It's an investment. 
It's anything but a gift. And it is an expression of a fear-based view of life rather than abundance. There's a great Methodist um, preacher, teacher, scholar named Leonard Sweet. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's been kind of quiet more, more recently. But he talks about giving and, and receiving in, in a really great way. He talks about, you know, most of us are really good at giving, but very few of us are very good at receiving. And he says, basically, giving keeps us into sort of a God complex. You know, we like giving. We like being in the superior position. We like being in God's position because then we get to give and we can be superior to and feel insulated from the needs and the wants and the fears of the people who need to receive. But of course, until we can receive, what have we got to give? What do we have to give until we've learned to receive? And especially until we've learned to be vulnerable enough to accept help from somewhere else, to accept a gift that is being freely offered, what do we have to give? And why are we giving? Again, we've got to check the intention of the gift. Is it to keep ourselves in the illusion of power and control? That's what it's about. When you're giving, you're in control. When you're receiving, you're absolutely not. Why are we giving? Is it an investment? Is it an obligation? Is it to stay in control? Until we can become vulnerable, until we can realize that we are the ower and not the owner, as Leonard Sweet would say, I love that. We are the ower, not the owner. Because everything that we have, all that we have, all that there is to have is God's. It's provided by God. Oh, I know, I earned it. Yeah, we're mostly just kind of moving deck chairs around on the Titanic. We can move resources around, but did we create them? Where did they come from? Where is that next breath coming from that allows you to go to work to buy the next thing that you say that you earned? This is a way, another way of looking at life, that everything is God's and we are mere caretakers. We are stewards of this. But we're not creators. We're moving things around. We're caretaking for a short time, and then it all has to go back anyway. Now we're getting closer to a Hebrew understanding, and I want to read one more passage to see if we can lock it down. And this is at Luke 16, again, starting at verse 1. And Jesus was saying to his disciples, his followers, his friends, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Okay, so what's he doing? Well, he's embezzling. You know, or he's skimming off the top. He's doing whatever he's doing. He's squandering his possessions. And he calls him and says to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you no longer can be manager. So he's going to get fired. He knows he's going to get fired. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. Great line. I love that line. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, 
they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right, riddle me that one, all of you scholars out there. What the heck is Jesus talking about? He's praising unethical behavior. He's praising, praising this swindler and saying not only that, but recommending that for the rest of us, holding him up as a model for all of us. What is Jesus doing here? <laughs> you know, this is one where, again, we need an idiomatic expression to save the day. So idioms are coming to our, our uh, rescue each time. This idea of the wealth of unrighteousness, see, that's going to trip us up. Because if we think about the wealth of unrighteousness in relation to the story, we're going to think about wealth, we're going to think about money that was unrighteously gained. Right? He embezzled it. It wasn't his. He embezzled it from his master. But what that idiomatic phrase really means, the wealth of unrighteousness, is about wealth that was unrighteously retained. Not gained. Retained. That's the issue here. So, what is Jesus talking about? What do we mean by retained? You know, it means that when we receive something, anything above what we absolutely need should become fodder for tzedakah. We should be able to give that back to people in need. We don't just gather it up and keep storing it and storing it. Anything above what we need should flow back into the community. That is righteous mammon. Mammon is wealth. Unrighteous mammon is mammon that is stored. It's been dammed up. It's been kept for the single person and not allowed to flow back. That's the unrighteous mammon. If you allow this mammon to flow, you take what you need for yourself, of course. You keep what you need for yourself and your family and you do everything responsibly, but the rest of it can flow. Then when you're in need, then it can flow back to you and you will always at some point be in need. This is how we remain connected. This is how we connect with each other. When Jesus talks about spirit, spirit, we've we mentioned this many times, spirit, rucha in Aramaic, is always in motion. Wind, breath, spirit, it all means it's all rucha. That means all three at the same time. All are characterized by motion. If there is no motion, that thing doesn't exist. If your breath is not in motion, you're not breathing. If the wind is not in motion, it's just air. And the spirit is not in motion. It's not spirit. It's not of God. It is always in motion, always moving, always flowing. And so spirit is a lot like electricity. Electricity. You know what electricity is? Nobody knows. But one thing we do know is that if it's not mo moving, it doesn't exist. You look at an outlet and say, okay, there's electricity there. No, there's a potential for electricity there. But until you put a load on it and it actually is doing some sort of work, lighting a light, turning a motor, it doesn't exist. It's only in motion or it's potential. Spirit is like that. If it's not moving, it doesn't exist. It has to flow. So if we dam it up in our fear in our view of need and lack and want, then it doesn't exist and we are no longer in spirit with God. We are no longer connected to God. We are no longer receiving the reward that we receive in God, in the moment, in motion. Now, does this mean that we're not supposed to save money and do our investments and do our 401k? Of course not. It doesn't mean that. 
Savings are a part of what we need to be responsible for us and our family and our heirs. But have we become characterized by fear to the extent that we can't allow things to flow, that we're afraid to let our resources flow. If we're completely focused on lack and need and want and we're fear-based, we don't have the trust. That means we need to cling to any point of control that we possibly can because that gives us at least the ability to take our next breath. But if we can start to have that first experience of the allness of God's love, to realize that it can't be in any way attenuated. It is always ours. From that spiritual point of view, we become more and more able to be free to let go of the things that we cling to. Let them flow. Get to that 51% mark when we're characterized by that freedom. Because knowing the truth of God's love makes us free to flow. We can now give as freely as received. That's what Jesus said at Matthew 10, verse 8. He said, freely you have received. Now, freely give. But until we realize that we have freely received, until we realize that there's no way to stop that flow of reception, how is it that we feel that we're able to give? That's the key. (laughs) Truly, How in the world do you really know that something is yours, that you actually possess it free and clear, that it's yours completely? The only way you can know that something is yours is when you can give it away with no strings attached. I own my car. I got the pink slip. I could give it away to you. The bank doesn't own it. There's nothing to pay on it. I can give it away. If I think I have peace and tranquility... I won't know that until I can give it away, until others can feel the peace and tranquility that is emanating from my life. Until we give something away, we will absolutely never know that it's ours because it's only in the act of giving that we, receive, that we realize we have received, that it is ours, and we can give it away. Think about it. You heard of heat-seeking missiles? Each one of us is a pleasure-seeking missile. Sorry to burst your bubble, but each one of us absolutely is a pleasure-seeking missile. And the only thing that distinguishes one from the other is what we take pleasure in. That's it. We're pleasure-seeking missiles. But when we come to know that everything of lasting value is already ours, then the greatest pleasure becomes giving it away in a continuous motion just like God does. This is what Jesus is trying to get across, that love is the oneness and the freedom and the flowing that he's talking about. Because in that flow, in that giving, in taking pleasure and being completely anonymous and seeing someone else's life begin to flourish, then we can start to say we are living in the absence of fear and our life is crossed over to love and trust and the bliss of kingdom. Not all the time. 51% plus, right? Let's pray. Father, here we are heading into Christmas again. The moment that you in human form came into our lives to show us what your love looks like 
in people. How it act absolutely can be done. That it's possible for something as pure and perfect as your love to exist in human form. That we can aspire to that. That we can take steps toward that. Thank you for this season that reminds us. And thank you for this scripture that shows us when we dig in what that looks like and what our next indicated step is. Help us to take those steps, Father. Help us to continue to want something more of your love, the understanding of what your love means, so that we never give up taking the next step and the step after that that takes us further and further into the abundance that you have to offer us. Father, we're grateful. We'd like to be more grateful more of the time. Thank you, Lord, for all of your love and your continuing presence in our lives. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.